thing is that we will suffer. And so if you haven't figured this out yet, we live in a, in a broken world. Like everything isn't quite as it should be. And that's really true regardless of if you uh, believe in Jesus or not. And so Peter is, is saying from experience, but also uh, repeating what Jesus said, that we're all going to experience suffering. And then he asks this, he says, it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil, because Peter, of course, is giving apologetic to Christians who are suffering and saying, hey, uh, don't 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 fit in with the culture so much that you don't realize that you're special people, that you're exiles, sojourners, called to God specifically uh, to, to 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 do His bidding on the earth, to be His lamppost on the earth, and you're going to experience a measure of suffering because of who you are, and because of who you are, because you're um, showing forth the light of of God to a, a a world that needs to see that. It's better for you to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And in our text today, he carries that same idea forward, saying Jesus suffered for doing good to keep you from suffering an ultimate evil, right? He says Jesus has suffered for doing good, not doing evil, and what Jesus does saves us from an ultimate suffering. So that's the overarching perspective that, that Peter is giving us in our text. It's one of suffering. Now, having said that, he was gonna, he's going to hone in on kind of three different topics uh, that sort of uh, gives proof to that. And the first thing that Peter tells us is that Jesus suffers for our sin. Look at verse 18 again. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ also suffered once for sins. Uh, I, my eyes are, are quickly trained to the word once. Guess what the word once in the Bible means right here in, in Greek? It means once, right? So the word once means once, but the important caveat is that Jesus died once for, for sins. And so what the Bible is conveying to us there through the Apostle Peter is that Jesus died once for every sin that you and I have ever committed and that every sin that we haven't even committed yet. And so those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we have Jesus who suffered in our place on the cross Peter says, the unrighteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so the apostle is, is giving us this, this refrain, kind of. Like, everybody's going to suffer in our world. Like, the good and the bad, everybody's going to suffer a little bit. Some will suffer for evil. Some will suffer even when they do good. But what we see in Jesus is that he suffered, though, doing nothing sinful or evil. Because Jesus suffered for, our, for, for sin. Jesus suffered for, for our sin. And in regards to sin, Peter tells us the Bible is pretty clear. He says there's a day of judgment coming. There's a day coming when we will all stand, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done. We're all going to stand before a holy God. And he will uh, unpack that more when we get to chapter 4 in a couple of weeks. We'll all stand before a holy God. There's a judgment coming where we'll have to give an account for everything that we've done, good or bad. And so the Bible is clear in regards to sin, that the wages of sin is death. Paul says that in Romans 6, verse 23. 
And when the Bible says through Paul that the wages of our sin is death, it's not just talking about a physical death. It's actually talking about a spiritual death, this eternal separation from our God for the rebellion that we have exuded against him. And so Peter is letting readers know, to include us, that there is a suffering, a suffering coming for all those who will stand on their own merits, right? An eternal suffering for all those who choose to stand on their own merits. We will all have to give an account for the evil and the rebellious ways uh, that we have uh, given to a holy God. And so Jesus, who's the only one who's ever done everything that's right and good, suffered for evil. He keeps on going. So Jesus suffered once for sins, and then he says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter says, everybody's going to suffer. It's better to suffer for doing good, because that's the better witness of, of, of a holy God, and we are his people. And there is only one who suffered uh, and yet did perfectly good. I don't even know if that's the right way to say that. All right. He did everything well. And the beauty of putting our faith in Jesus is that all the good that Jesus did while he was on the earth becomes ours when we put our faith in him. It's like a great exchange, right? You get to be defined no longer by your unrighteousness. And instead, you get to be defined by Jesus' perfect obedience. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's this great exchange. Everything that we are, Jesus uh, took upon himself, and he gave us everything that he is. This beautiful exchange that Martin Luther talked about. And that's really important, especially on those, those days and perhaps those weeks that you're reminded of, like, how bad you are. There are a few of y'all that don't think you're bad anytime, but the majority of us know that there's some days, perhaps there's weeks, maybe even months, your spouse might say that you are not quite at your best, right? Those days where uh, just the litany of things that you do that you don't want to do are, are prevalent to your mind. Those days that we're not loving well, that we're not listening well, that we're not patient with those around us, that we're not walking in the ways that the Bible says that we should walk. And here we're, we need to be reminded, we need the righteousness of Christ to be the defining statement of our lives, right? It's not those things that we do that we wish we could do better. There's an exchange that has happened. Christ has given us all of himself and he takes on all of who we are, and that's the thing that defines us now. In Christ Jesus, the righteousness of Christ is the thing that defines us more than anything else. And so Peter's exhorting his readers that we've been forgiven in Jesus, we've been made righteous in Jesus, we're brought into communion with the living God through Jesus, but the very resource that enables Jesus to do all that he does is, is the resource that's available to us, right? And he's conveying that in the, same, in the same verse. It's the Spirit of God. And that's the last thing that I'll point out in verse 18. So Peter says, Christ also suffered for, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. And so you and I have something that takes the pain and the suffering and the difficulties of life and turns it into something that can bring glory to God. And Peter says it's the Spirit of God that we get when we become the people of God. And so you and I are brought to God through Jesus. That's, a point, that's an important point that Peter is, is making here in this text. 
which means you and I don't actually bring ourselves to, to God. God does that for us through Jesus. We don't have to make ourselves clean. We don't have to make ourselves right. We don't have to climb some spiritual mountain to get to God. You don't bring yourself to God. Jesus brings uh, us to God through his death and on the cross and his resurrection. He brings us to God. And we stress about that sometimes, don't we? Like, like uh, however you live your life, sometimes we, 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 we go through life and we think about, like, what more should I be doing? How can I perform more? How could, I mean, should I be attending church more, going to Bible study more, reading the Bible more, praying more? And so the question in our minds sometimes, because we know ourselves better than anyone else, is what more should I be doing? What more do I need to do to ensure that I have a better relationship with God? And I'm not negating the, the things that the Bible says that, that help us in regards to our growing sanctification in, in, in Scripture that, that draws us closer to God. But the answer that the Bible gives in regards to what are the things that I should be doing to ensure I have a better relationship with God is nothing. Isn't that reassuring? The Bible says, if I put my faith in Jesus, there's nothing else I need to do to inherit this righteousness that God uh, gives to me, that he puts on me because I put my faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one that brings me to God. There's one other thing I think that we can't overlook in this text. Uh, this is the third time in all of 1 Peter that he would have paused to, to maximize the message of the gospel. And there's a warning here, and that particular warning is that today is the day of salvation. He's talking about the gospel here, the, the good news of a God that, um, that comes from heaven into our world and lives like us to die for us on the cross for, for our sins. And he's reminding us that there is a day of salvation that we're being promised. It's, it's, it's going to come. The promise of Scripture is that we'll all stand before the creator of the universe guilty of our sin if and only if we receive Jesus as he dies on the cross in our place for our sins. Because when we receive Christ, those who should suffer for doing evil because, uh, because we haven't re received him are spared. We're saved. And we're saved because Jesus suffers for us. He pays for our evil. He dies for our sins. And I think that's something we all need to hear. We all need to hear that there is an impending judgment. There's none of us that will escape it except for that you put your faith in Jesus who bears that burden for you. And so I think we all need to hear that. Some of you perhaps today, I hope some of you still are on the live stream listening to us. Some of you maybe on the live stream uh, need to be called to believe that. And some of us in the room perhaps or on the live stream need to, be, need to put our trust in Jesus Today, that's what the Bible is telling us. So the first thing that, that, that Peter exhorts us is that Jesus suffers for our sin. Here's the second thing we see in our text, that Jesus speaks through our lives. Look down at verse 19. For Christ also suffered, that's not verse 19, that's verse 18. Uh, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. All right, some commentators say, and, and I would humbly agree, um, that this passage that we're looking at today, but more, uh, more specifically, these two verses are some of the more difficult verses in the entire Bible to uh, interpret. 
right? So, and, and here's the difficulty with uh, making sense of, of, of text that we have no idea. Like, what in the world is he saying? Is, you know, you, you, you spend a lot of time uh, explaining it. Um, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, says uh, about these two verses, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. All right, so that's just a precursor to, to what I'm going to get into next. And if that is what Martin Luther, the, the, the father of the Protestant Reformation, says about verse 19 and 20, all right, pray for your pastor, right? Right. Um, so uh, one other commentator says, if we, if, we, if we translate this in the original language in the Greek, there's over 180 combinations of thought on how to translate this, okay? And so I'm not that smart. I'm not going to pr pretend to be that smart. Uh, I'm only going to give you a couple of references as to how some, some very smart people have interpreted what's being written, what's being said in verse 19 and 20. The first is, some people think that when, when Peter says, spirit in prison, uh, it refers to demonic powers who had sinned at some point in the time of Noah. Okay, and there, there, there's some relevance to that. A second uh, idea would be people that think that this means Jesus went to hell at some point, perhaps between his death and his resurrection, to proclaim victory over uh, the unbelieving dead. Now, those of you who are familiar with church history and our creeds might uh, refer to the, uh, might think about the Apostles' Creed and that phrase that Jesus descended into hell, and uh, this would uh, give credence to that. Uh, another idea is that, uh, and this is a, a small segment of people, smart people, albeit, that this passage offers support to the idea of some sort of post-mortem opportunity for those who have died without faith to believe in the gospel. And if you grew up Catholic, or if you know those who are, are Catholic, this is a, a tenet of their faith that they believe. This is the, uh, this is the idea behind penance and, and, and all that. Um, so, those, I mean, there's lots more thoughts than that. And... and, and I can't speak to all these intelligibly uh, because there are there, there are symbols of symbolisms of truth in each one of these that that man, well isn't that kind of kind of sort of right? Uh, and so I, I'll give you my humble take, and my humble take is is undergirded by just commentators that I've read and other pastors that I uh, that I've uh, listened to that have uh, unpacked this text, and I think that leans uh, more towards what I think would be the right interpretation. Uh, given uh, what I'm going to say now, and, and so it's that the pre-incarnate Christ went into the went in the Holy Spirit. So that means he wasn't physically there. He went by the Holy Spirit and he preached to those spirits. Those spirits being um, the souls in Noah's day that lived and that died, that that also rejected Noah's message uh, of impending judgment. Does that make sense? And so pre-incarnate Christ went in the Holy Spirit and preached to those spirits from Noah's day that rejected Noah's message of impending judgment. That's a lot. I'm not actually going to unpack that um, because it would just take me too long. But here's, here's the thing that I think we should land on. Whichever view you have in regards to what in the world is the Apostle, Paul, Apostle Peter saying right here, um, I think the fact of the matter is it does not change the truth of the gospel, right? We still have a Jesus who lived and died and rose again, and, and he reigns forever in heaven. And he's going to come back and, and, and rescue us all, right? It doesn't change the gospel. Now, fact of the matter is, uh, some of these ideas about what the apostle is saying seem more right than others. 
but I don't think we're going to know exactly what Peter was talking about until we get to heaven and we walk up to Peter and say, Peter, what in the world were you talking about in your letter to the dispersed church like when, in, in our verse 3, verse 18 and 19 and 20? And Peter might tell us. And so, the, again, if we, if we uh, draw back out and try to get a, a wider perspective, I think the, the question to really ask is, how do we deal with passages like this that seem confusing? And perhaps all of you have been reading your Bible, and every once in a while, you happen upon passages in the Bible that you're saying, well, what is the Bible telling me right now? Holy Spirit, like, help me understand. And my answer to you in terms of, of, of how to interpret uh, difficult texts would be, firstly, do it very humbly, right? Because you weren't there. None of us were there when Peter wrote these words. And we have, you know, Martin Luther doesn't even have any idea what he's talking about. But there are some, um, some tools that, that very smart people uh, have given us, uh, mostly in the light of hermeneutics, the art and the science of interpreting the Bible, that helps us come to grips with what's being said here. And three points from hermeneutics says we should always ask these questions when we are uh, experiencing texts in the Bible that are hard to interpret. And they are, the, they are these. Firstly, what is the author saying in light of the situation? What is the author saying in light of the situation, which means we should pay attention to the context? Secondly, what is, this, what is he saying, the author saying, in light of what he's already said? And so very right, right, readily, um, the, the scripture writers, you know, they're writing more than paragraphs and sentences. They're writing whole letters to people. They're writing narratives. And we can look back and see that it, the scripture oftentimes interprets scripture. And thirdly, we can ask, what is the author saying in light of the overall narrative of the Bible? In other words, uh, what they're saying should not be an outlier. What they're saying should actually agree and affirm uh, everything that Bible has already said. And so when we look at what Peter says in verse 19 and 20 through that lens, first of all, we have a situation. I mean, who has Peter been writing to uh, during the, in all these words that we've been reading? He's been, he's been writing and speaking to a group of people who are suffering for the sake of Jesus, uh, mostly in Asia Minor. These are people who are feeling isolated, they feel rejected, they feel ostracized for their faith. Some of them are being accused of doing wrong because, because uh, the way that Christianity has been founded um, has given them uh, just a, a different way of living in the culture that they're in. And so Christianity is starting to stir things up. Think about what we've said a couple weeks ago, how the marginalized are, are being valued. Some of them are... are experiencing new opportunities they did not have before. Think of the, the women with unbelieving husbands who are immersed in, in Christianity and are given worth and value and significance they did not have before. And so Peter is speaking to these people, these dispersed, ostracized, rejected people, and he's encouraging them in a way that will resonate with their, with their narrative. Now, he mentions Noah, and that's a, 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 an important part of our text, right? And so, I mean, there's an interesting question there. Why, why would he go all the way back to the story of Noah to talk to these people, these, these people who are suffering in, in a first century, century context? And I think historically, uh, there, there are ancient writings and uh, church history that tells us that this particular people would have been very familiar with the story uh, of Noah. Firstly, this is first century, and so that their Bible was the Old Testament text, and some of the writings uh, you know, uh, that the apostles were writing in the moment. Uh, but, but in this moment, 
apart from the stories of Jesus, really, or, or any teaching about God, they would have known about Noah. They would have known about this, this ancient story, both secular and biblical, of, of this great flood that, that took out everything and only a few people would have survived. There's, a, there's some interesting history about this particular region where these dispersed people are. They had an, a, a particular affinity for the story of the flood. These are not, there's, there's several non-biblical, archaic, secular accounts of a great flood and this guy named Noah and his family that survived. Now, they made Noah a, a hero, like Noah was the, the initiator of this ark that saved him, his family and saved humanity. Uh, so much so that um, in, this particular, in one particular area here in this region, Noah and his wife were minted on the back of coins. Of course, the other side being Caesar, the, the, the ruler of the, the Roman Empire. And so they would have known this story. They also would have known what Peter writes in 2 Peter 2.5, that, that, that Noah was a herald of righteousness, calling people to repent. And so what Peter is doing here is he's being a really good missionary. Think about Paul in Acts 17, that Paul goes into Athens and he uses non-biblical sources to challenge um, philosophers of the day and orders about an unknown God that they're worshiping that Paul says, hey, this unknown God is actually the God, the creator of the universe uh, that, that I know. His name is, is Jesus. And Peter is doing that same thing. He's being a, a missionary here. He, he thinks of a story that they're familiar with that speaks to their current situation, the current narrative. But more importantly, he gives them this, this beautiful, powerful picture of God's rescue and salvation. And what is that? It's the story of, of the flood coming and God saving a few people, Right. And so what Peter's doing is he's calling his readers to hope in the midst of suffering. So we still get this picture, this overarching uh, idea of all right, there's going to be suffering in our world, particularly because you are people of faith and God is a rescuer. Right. And so he's saying to these people, when life gets hard, remember the story of Noah. Just go back and think about what the Bible's already said about the, the God being a God of salvation, of him being a, a God of rescue. And, and, and the story of Noah is really interesting, right? We find it in Genesis 6. Uh, God comes to Noah. He sees wickedness on the earth. And God, and, and God commissions him to build an ark. And that ark would have taken a long time. Go back and read Genesis 6. That ark, 300 cubits. Do a little Google, Google stuff, right? Use that new Google Translate app on your iPhone, right? 300 cubits is 450 feet, which is 150 yards. That's a football field and a half. That's how big the ark was. It would have taken Noah a long time to build this ark. And in the midst of him gathering the materials, creating tar, um, amassing all the things that he had to make and finding space to do it, clearing out trees, you can imagine all the people in the surrounding area, they're like, you're a fool. What did, they, what, what did God say? Who is God? This is crazy. What are you doing? Why would we believe you? He's being ridiculed. And yet all the while, we don't know exactly the verbiage that Noah would have, the interchange that he would have had with those people in his day, but, but he's continuing to tell people, hey, this is what I hear from God. There's a judgment coming, and I'm warning you. You got to turn to God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, wake up. I'm not building an ark because I'm bored. Like, I got other things to do, right? I'm building an ark so that I can get saved. And God told me to invite you to come on with me. And nobody, the Bible says in verse 20, he says, nobody but Noah's immediate family 
believes only those eight people ultimately get in the ark and are saved. And so we can see uh, why Peter might be sharing this story to those who are being ostracized. He's, he's giving a, a reference point, right? He's saying, like Noah, he's receiving, um, he, he's warning them. He's saying, God is serious. There's a day of judgment coming. And, and you can turn right now from your sin to Jesus for forgiveness. There's a way out of the flood of God's wrath, the, a wrath that's coming an eternal wrath that you will not be able to escape. And that's why I think it supports this view. I mean, that was a lot, right? But I think that's, that's, that's undergirding this view that, that verse 19 is, is, is giving to us, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in, in prison. I'm convinced Peter is speaking to the people of Noah's day, who Noah would have been speaking to, who ultimately rejected the warning. So when we get to verse 20, it talks about the people not obeying, even though God was patient while the ark was being prepared, and he ended, ultimately only ended up saving uh, eight people, it makes hermeneutical sense that Peter is referring to, to persons of Noah's day who didn't listen, because there's only eight people who came out of that who actually did. And so the spirits in prison in verse 19 are those who rejected the message of warning, Anytime you see prison in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, it's referring to a place of separation from God. And so these people have been, because of their unbelief, because of their rebellion, uh, God has uh, separated himself from them, or rather they've separated themselves from God, right? And the Bible teaches that the, uh, these are those who ultimately will spend eternity in hell. And so what is Peter saying? He was referring back all the way to Noah, saying the Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah to people warning them. And he gives up some proof text in other places. 1 Peter 1.10. Way back in, first, in the first chapter of, of his letter to this, this, this first people, verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring with the person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12 it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that you've been that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so Peter goes back and he gives, uh, you know, here in this case, he's referring to uh, to prophets, Old Testament prophets prior to Jesus even coming. And Peter is saying, when the gospel is being proclaimed through these Old Testament prophets, it's the Holy Spirit. It's, it's by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that's speaking through his people. And unfortunately, they didn't listen, right? They rejected that message. What other passage? Ephesians 2.17. This is Paul. Paul says in Ephesians 2.17, and he, Jesus, came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Now, I'm using this verse um, not to trip you up, but of course, this is Paul in, in just like a beautiful letter encouraging um, the church at Ephesus on who they are as the body of Christ, Jesus as the head, and the beauty of this, this church that God has called to himself to be really the, the ambassadors uh, for his glory on the earth. And um, but the question I want to ask you or like bring, bring up here in, in, our, in regards to our text is, is Jesus never went to Ephesus, right? But what, what, Peter's, what Paul says here is that 
uh, Jesus is the one that's, uh, that's speaking, that, that, that speaks to those who are far and near, that preaches to those who are far and near. This is Paul writing to, to those people who lived in Ephesus and preached the gospel to them. He's conveying that Jesus came and preached to those who are far off and those who are near. But the question is, was Jesus actually ever in Ephesus? Right? I mean, Jesus walked everywhere he went. Uh, and Ephesus would not have been too far away uh, from Israel proper, but it, it, Jesus never went there. Paul is the one that went to Ephesus and, and spoke to them. And so what is, what, is, what, is, what is Paul saying? Was Jesus in Ephesus? He's saying no. Yes. He wasn't there physically, but he was there because the Spirit was there, preaching through him. He's saying uh, Jesus speaks um, by the Spirit through his people. All right? Paul will further, further say in Ephesians 2, Jesus preaches through his people by the Spirit. All right, so those of you, I, I'm geeking out, right, over all this, this uh, trying to unpack this idea of the difficulty of verse 19 and, and 20. So the question is, I mean, what is the big deal? What is the big deal about these, these verses? What are they saying to us? And here's what they're saying. The pre-incarnate Christ preached to the people in Noah's day by the Spirit through Noah. And the Spirit proclaimed through the prophets by the Spirit of his coming that he come, that he, Jesus, would come, a Messiah would come and suffer for sin. And the Spirit of God that enabled Christ to preach through Noah and the prophets is the same Spirit that empowers Jesus during his earthly ministry. That same Spirit fills Jesus' church so that we preach with the same power and presence Jesus preached. That make sense? All right, so hermeneutically, we can come to this text and say, what is Peter saying that would affirm what the Bible has already said? And it's just this. The, the, the Spirit preached through Noah, and guess what? The people rejected him. And the Spirit preached, the Spirit of Christ preached through the Old Testament prophets, and guess what? The people rejected the prophets. And the Spirit of Christ preached through Christ, right? During his earthly days on earth, and there were only a couple, there were only a few that followed him. Even some of the, the apostles themselves uh, left Jesus. They all rejected him. And so the, the text is encouraging us, don't be surprised when you have the Spirit of Christ operating in you, and yet everyone doesn't believe, right? There, there, there's, the Spirit operates in you just like it did in, in all these Old Testament and figures and also Jesus. Don't be surprised as the Spirit is operating in you, yet everyone doesn't believe what you're saying. And that's the application of, of this part of our text. The evidence of the Spirit of God working in your life is not always how people respond to you or to God because of you. You know how a lot of times we think that with our words and with our lives, like it's our job to get people saved or it's our job to, get, to make people believe about God? This text is, is telling us a little bit otherwise. It's saying that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of the Spirit of God in our lives is our faithfulness to preach the message, oftentimes with words, oftentimes with our lives, even if it falls on deaf ears. Here's how Paul says it. He says, some are going to plant some seeds, some are going to water it. The Holy Spirit provides the increase, right? God provides the increase. And so here's the encouragement of the, the story of Noah. We keep doing it. We don't give up. We persevere, just like Noah. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ wouldn't let uh, Noah shut his mouth until the day of judgment came. The rain started coming down. It lifted the ark up, and God closed the door of the ark. 
Until that point came, Noah, Noah was very readily saying, hey, judgment is coming. God is calling you to himself. Come on in the ark. And they constantly rejected him. And I think that's how the Spirit works. The Spirit witnesses to us so that we can, we can in turn witness to others. And the same Spirit that spoke through Noah in his day and that was on his lips, it's the same spirit that preached through Peter's lips at Pentecost. It's the same spirit that preached through the Old Testament prophets. It's the same spirit that preached through Jesus in his ministry and even from the cross. And that should be great encouragement to us. God has not left us alone. He has given us the spirit. And that's where Peter goes next. When we consider Noah and all that he did, really, Noah was just a willing vessel. Noah was told he was commissioned to build the boat. He had nothing to do with the, the salvation uh, of the people that were going to get on that boat at the end of the day. There's nothing he could do to make the boat float. It was really God that designed the ark. It was God who saved them from the flood. and was God who really did all the work. And that's the last thing that, that we'll see in our text. Jesus saves us from the flood. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, the resurrection of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And so Peter's not saying, uh, so let me, let me back up. This text right here uh, has caused a little bit of heresy because it looks as if when you read it, it's saying baptism saves you. Y'all know some people that believe that. Perhaps you're here today. And uh, you have, well, this, it says, now saves you. Baptism, which corresponds one of this, now saves you. All right? Scripture interprets Scripture. And so this is the only place in the Bible where we see this phrase used, and it's not repeated anywhere else in, in Scripture. So we have to ask ourselves, all right, um, let's look at it in context and the situation. Uh, what else has the author said? And what, I mean, how could this affirm what the rest of the Bible says about baptism. So when we apply that same method to here hermeneutically, what we end up with is Peter is not saying getting in the water of baptism saves you. What he's pointing to is what baptism speaks to, right? That's what he's talking about. And in our baptism, here's what we're saying. We're saying, I need somebody else to change me. Like I, I've tried and I failed. I've tried and I failed. I need someone else to forgive me. I need someone else to come in and make me new. I need, I need to die to all the, the, the ways that Jeff is trying in his own strength to become righteous, right? Because I've tried a lot of ways and they've all failed in and of my own strength. And what I need to do is, and the Bible's encouraged me to do this, is to die to all the ways uh, and symbolically be put in the ground with Jesus in his burial and then be in turn raised again to new life with his life as my life. It's that beautiful exchange. Union with Christ. When you get baptized, you're saying, I can't do it. I, I can't cleanse myself. I can't get rid of my sin on my own. And so our baptism is a picture of our appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And so Peter says, our baptism is a reminder of the flood and Noah's ark and how these eight people were ultimately saved. Our baptism corresponds to this because in the story of the flood, God tells Noah to build an ark in a very particular way. Go back to Genesis 6. God gives him the plans. God oversaw the building of the project. 
God ultimately was the general contractor of building that football in the field link like arc, right? And because God is the one that set it in motion, God knew what it would be able to take to handle the wrath that the earth was literally about to experience. This immensity of water that was about to flood the earth, uh, poured over all humanity, uh, getting, rid of, getting rid of the wickedness that was on display. And so the question that many of you might have is, like, why in the world would God bring a flood? And if you go to Genesis 6, uh, the answer that we get was, man, the earth was just bad. And not just the earth was bad, the people were bad. And so we, we only have reference to uh, how life is in our day. But we can look in the history books and see how life was in other days, particularly uh, the years that we had world wars. And we said, man, humanity was bad. But in Genesis 6, the, the Moses, the author of the Torah, the uh, Pentateuch, gives this picture of the earth, humanity in particular, was so bad that God was going, I mean, he was about to destroy it willing to destroy it. And that really is what the flood does. Genesis, 5, Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the hearts of his, uh, thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. I mean, those are like really bad words to read, right? And, and it would be easy to, to think that God was being cruel here, it's like, well, if God is so loving, why would, why would he create humanity, put humanity in charge of the earth, give him all this responsibility, and just because we did a few bad things, just like wipe him out? But the reality here, and this is what I think we, grab, uh, we, we grasp from Genesis 6, is that if God did not put a stop to the wickedness that was on the earth amidst humanity at that time, that humanity would have ultimately killed ourselves off. That's how bad I think the text is telling us in Genesis 6 uh, how bad humanity was. There would have been no humanity left. And so in his grace, what does God do? He saves humanity through one family. Right? He creates this, this, this ark, this, this, this safety net, so that humanity could get another start. And so he designed the means by which they would be saved, which was a, a giant boat made of wood and timber and tar, put together so it would float. And he called Noah to go into the ark. And basically, they sat and they, they, they hid there. Uh, any of y'all seen the, the movie Noah with Russell Crowe? All right, so I, I, I love it when Hollywood actually um, embarks on taking scripture and creatively showing it to us and you know all the world can come and see it. Uh, I, I get offended when they actually don't read the text and just do, just like say what the text says, because, you know, we'll, we'll support it then. And so in this account of Noah Russell Crowe, it's entertaining. It's like, I, I like it. I, I'll watch it anytime it comes on TV or whatever, anytime they get to see it. But they didn't stick with the text, right? And so there are some creative licenses taken in the story of, of, of Noah. Um, but but uh, in regards to this, this movie, Noah, the, the misnomer is, is that they had a whole way of life on the ark. Like, they were on the ark, not just 40 days and nights as the water filled the earth. That water had to subside, and it took 150 days, Genesis 6 tells us, for that water to wash all the way. Okay, so think, 150 days, half a year on the ark. And so, uh, so we want to we um, make this idea that they had a, a way of life 
But really, I don't think they did. I think the ark was a cocoon. They were stuck there. God told them, all right, you're going to amass some animals, uh, two of every kind to come on the, on the earth, seven of every clean kind. And then uh, he said, go ahead and get some food for you and for them. Other than that, they just sat there and waited. Why do I say that? That thing had no oars. It had no sails. It had no rudder. They couldn't control anything. They were, they were there. There's nothing they could do. They just had to get in, which is a picture of being totally reliant on God. They were, they were in the ark to be saved by God, and that made them totally reliant on God. I think there's an application for us in that. What are you climbing into to deal with your guilty conscience? What are you giving your life to that you think is going to save you or, or rescue you from the decisions that you've made in the past, from failures that you've had, from things that you've done, the things that have been done to you, maybe even your own sense of inadequacy? Those are, are applications that we can extract from this family, this singular family, getting to the ark and God saving them from themselves. So here's what Peter conveys to us. He says, just like Noah's family is sealed in this ark and they're saved from God's wrath, this wrath of the flood, God's wrath being poured out on all the sins of the world, he wants us to climb into Christ. There's this beautiful picture of, the, of our union with Christ in this text. We're being encouraged to find our life in Jesus, who is the true and the better ark. Here's what Paul says in Romans 6. Verse 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might, we too might walk in newness of life. And Paul says, When we find new life in Christ, your old life is buried. It's put to death. And your new life is identified with Christ, the one who saves you from the wrath. Of God, And not only are you saved from your sin, we're saved so that we might have a clear and clean conscience. That's what he means by this appeal to a good conscience. A lot of times when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, we particularly focus in on propitiation. It's, it's, to, be, um, it's to escape the wrath of God. It's, it's, it's the wrath of God that's diverted off of us because of our sin and put on Jesus. And that's what Jesus incurs on the cross. But there's also a theological element of, of expiation. Expiation is, is it's like being cleansed from the inside out. And that's hap that happens in the gospel as well. And that reminds us that, you know, some, sometimes it's the thoughts on the inside that, um, that plague us more than our actual actions. Many of us have regrets. There's things that we think about that we've done, things that we think about that things that others have done to us, and, and we can't get rid of those thoughts. And so here is Scripture's welcome. Uh, to, to uh, appealing to a good conscience. It's come to Jesus. It's receive his grace. It's know that Jesus died uh, for every sin that you've ever committed. He's died for sins committed against you, and his blood cleanses you from a guilty conscience even today. And so Peter tells us to consider the resurrection. That's the last thing we see here in this in particular verse. And so not only should we place ourselves in Christ because he died in our place to overcome sin for us, but he rose again just as Christ was raised to new life. So are we raised to Christ in newness of life. And I think you think about how God uniquely designed this ark. It was the only thing that was able to rise above the flood on the waters 
that was set to destroy all the sin on all the earth, right? The ark was the only thing that could survive. And if you or and I are in the ark, you survived with it, right? That's the picture of the flood. Noah and his family got in the ark, and as long as they were in the ark, they were gonna they were gonna be uh, they were gonna be saved, regardless of how rough the waters were, regardless of how long the waters subsided. God had provided a way of protection for them, and that's the picture Peter gives us of what God does for us in Christ. God has done the same thing for us in Jesus. There's only one who can survive the wrath of God being poured out for our sin, and that's Jesus. And when Jesus dies on the cross in our place for our sin, he absorbs all the wrath. That's propitiation, right? The wrath of God against any sin that you've ever committed. And he was raised on the third day as a vindication that God's requirements for sin have been fully met in him. And just as the ark rose above the floodwaters, we can rise above our sin as long as we're in Jesus. We're no longer defined by them. We're no longer controlled by them. We're no longer limited by our weaknesses of our sin nature. We're set free in the power of the Spirit to live a new life. And the Bible says that's the gospel. That's the good news of what Jesus does for us as he goes to the cross for us. And so not only has Jesus died for you, he's risen for you. And this union with Christ says if you're in Christ, like Noah's family was in the ark, then you get what Jesus did. You get the benefit of who he is, and you get to live the life that he provides as he lives through you. And so what Peter is ultimately saying to all of us is he's saying, remember what God does in Noah's day. And what Jesus does is way better, right? Jesus is the better ark that overcomes the sin of the world and rises above its flood. All right, last verse, verse 22. This Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And so here's Peter's last word before he gives, you know, two more chapters of, of, of writing. He says, not only does Jesus die for your sin and save you a new life, but he's lifted you up to the highest place so there's no power on earth that can have any authority over above the authority of Christ in your life. Christ is above all. And, and then he names some things. He says he's above all names, he's above all angels, he's above all powers because they've been subjected to him. He's above all authorities. He's seated in the highest place with everything subjected to him. And that really is the last picture that that Peter gives us here. Not only does Jesus die for sin, just as the ark rose above the water and rested on the mountain, the mountain of Ararat, you can read in Genesis, right? That mountain that we think is in Turkey, there, there are... Um, stories that uh, 13,000 feet below the mountain, they found artifacts of what they think is the remnants of the, of the ark there. We're resting on the mountain of God's grace, just like this ark rests on that mountain. And we have nothing to fear. We're in the highest place. Your sin can't crush you. Your brokenness can't derail you. It can't defeat you. And so don't let what you've done, don't let your failures, don't let what's, um, what's been done to you define you. Don't let it control you or keep you down. If you're in Christ, this union with Christ, here's what Peter says. You're seated above every rule and every authority and every power. And that's good news for us, good news for our souls. And so some of you are, are probably saying, all right, Jeff, so like practically, what do I do with this? Like this, this 
complicated stuff that Peter's talking about, other than just knowing Jesus died for, my, for me and my place for my sin. And I would say two things primarily. The first is maybe you're here today and you've never actually entered into the ark of, of God's love for you in Jesus. And there is a, is a welcome there. You know, we, we seek all kinds of things to, um, to, to protect us, to, to set us free, to save us. We look to all kinds of things to, to rescue us, right? To make the world right, to make it feel right. We look to our jobs and we look to our relationships. We look to our, our good looks, which are ever fading. I mean, what are those things that you might look to to help you rise above what everybody else thinks of you? And the, the invitation is you find those things in Christ. And you're welcome to the ark of the love of God for you by what Jesus does on the cross. The text says there's only one who is above all, and that's Jesus. And so the, the invitation is put your life in Jesus today. Why? Because he'll lift you up. I, I, I love Psalm 3. It says that uh, thou, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. The psalmist got it right. Jesus is the only one, the Messiah, the one that's going to come. Live our life, drink our drink, wear our clothes, ultimately down the cross for us. He's the only one that lifts our head. He brings us to where he is. And of course, the, the last thing that we should think about in regards to all this, what do we do with this, is this idea of baptism. The majority of you here, the majority of you looking uh, on our live stream, uh, you, you've been baptized. And a lot of times, baptism is a singular event that we do it uh, out of obedience. It's a sacrament, sacraments being um, traditions that Jesus set in place that we are to do uh, as, we, uh, as we symbolically picture the gospel happening in our lives. In this case, baptism, uh, going down in the water, dying to uh, the sins of our life, and then being immersed out of the, uh, coming up out of the water, coming up to the new life in Christ. And so we're encouraged here, even for those of you who've been in Christ for a long time, to remember your baptism, to celebrate your baptism, to remember that you have died with Christ. But you've also rose, risen with Christ, and you're now seated in the heavenly realms because of his power and might. And so we can celebrate those things. Even as we come to communion, the thing to think about is, man, Jesus, this table is available to me because my baptism wasn't just a cleansing from, my, from physical dirt from my body, but literally I was baptized into Christ. The old is gone. The Bible says a new has come. And of course, the last thing is some of you might need to get baptized. Here at the transit, we don't um, we don't prescribe that if you've gotten baptized, you should get rebaptized. Uh, even for those of you that come from more liturgical settings and you've baptized by, uh, by pouring or by sprinkling, that's your baptism. Okay? And, 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 and you have entered into the covenant of God of being, uh, being obedient to Jesus' command to get baptized as an expression of uh, the outworkings of God's gospel in your life. And so you don't need to get baptized, but perhaps some of you have never actually done that since you believed. Now, we do believe that you should be a believer to, to get baptized, that it's a profession of your faith. Uh, three months ago, little Edith, little Edie, Edie Hall came up to me. I was standing in the foyer over there, and uh, uh, of course, Brian and Valerie had given me a heads up. It's like, hey, Edie just received Jesus as her Savior, and she's already ready to get baptized. I think she's seven. Edie, how old are you? You're six, six, six. She's six, all right. Young, young girl, coming to faith. 
uh, and we, you know, a, a parent is uh, the, the ones who we think should qualify, validate uh, as, a, as a child's uh, personal commitment to, to faith. And so when Edie came up to me, she's like, Pastor Jeff, uh, I believe Jesus died for my sins and, and rose again, and he's my savior, and I want to get baptized. And I promised her three months ago, we get baptized. All right, so I, I just preached a text about baptism, right? Well, kind of, sort of. And so uh, sometime this fall, Edie, I don't know when, sometime this fall, we're going to set a tank up and, uh, and we're going to actually baptize, baptize uh, Edith. And so we welcome you. If you have yet to get baptized, what, I mean, today is the day of salvation, right? Uh, let's be obedient to the Lord and um, present this beautiful display of the outworking of the, the good news in our hearts. Jesus dying in our place for our sin and us identifying in him with that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for uh, this scripture. We're thankful for how scripture interprets scripture. What a beautiful thing. You know, some of us have heard this story of Noah so many times that it's just a story, right? It's a good story. It makes for a great movie. And sometimes we can uh, resort to it just as that. Uh, uh, and we never connect the dots in terms of how it points us to Jesus. So thank you that, that in Peter, we can see this old story made new, and, and Jesus, how you are a far better art, that you provide safety for us. You're the rescuer. You're the one that offers us salvation. All we have to do is just climb in and receive. And so we pray today that you remind us, remind us of how uh, it, it, if we're in you, we're hidden from the very wrath of God. You propitiated us from our sin. We're hidden from the, the, the suffering and the brokenness uh, of the world that we live in. We can be lifted up above all those things that formerly defined us. And, and lastly, you give us this picture that we're seated with you. And there's, there's no authority. There's no power. There's no angel. There's no demon in, in hell that can thwart us from your plan for us. So, Jesus, I, I pray for especially those who are here today or listening uh, on the Internet that, that haven't entered into that that saving, art, God-loving relationship with you, that God, they would, you would open their hearts to your love. We pray that, that they receive you today. Today is the day of salvation. They receive you today. That you saved them from the flood today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, Transit Church, let's respond. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing a song with Brandon and the worship team, and then Pastor Nick will come up with a response and our benediction. Let's all stand.